Um, I was stirring this pot of beans that I have just added onions to, and I stirred a little too vigorously. And uh, a a um, large uh, droplet of bean juice, of bean water, uh, shot straight up out of the pot, and then, or, or not straight, but parabolically up out of the pot, and then down directly on the top of my foot. Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast for two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by singing about the Cleveland Browns. I'm your host, Charles Bovinger, coming to you from Washington, D.C., where it is sunny after an entire week of rain. With me on the line, as always, from Istanbul, my co-host, David Will. David, how's it going? Uh, it's, it's a wonderful evening here in Istanbul, um, where I, because I am an infidel, um, am not at all hungry, but many of the people around are eagerly, desperately waiting for mm. sunset right. so that they can break their fasts. Ramadan having begun for people who didn't catch that. Yeah, happy happy Ramazan, as they say oh. here to you. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and if I may explore that point, I don't know if you, did you uh, hear the or see this recent absurd internet thing of Laurel versus Yanni. Yes, I did. So, um, the Turks say Ramazan rather than people in America who mostly say Ramadan in English because both are stemming from the Arabic Ramadan and in some primordial past when the Turks uh, encountered Islam and first heard this word, they interpreted, they don't have a the sound in, they didn't have a the sound in their language. Um, and so when they heard it, they said, huh, that sounds like our z. And so that's how they reproduced the sound. Whereas we, uh, in English, whatever the path was, I mean, obviously we could have said Ramadan because we have that sound in our language, more or less. Um, but the, the pathway that brought that word to us um, hardened it into a D. And these types of things, um, you know, get, uh, we re-encounter them in the present with these, like, internet kerfuffles, uh, like Laurel or Yanni. Um, but I find those things sort of sort of delightful because they remind me of issues like this that are so, that are somewhat more esoteric. Um, and I find them also kind of terrifying because they're the kind of disputes that people used to kill each other about. Right. And it is a wonderful thing that in the modern era, we can pretend to get so angry and frustrated that we want to kill each other and, you know, tweet angrily at one another online and then, just ignore it later. Uh, and it is a wonderful thing that we have in this day and age, uh, political and legal institutions, constitutional systems that allow us to encounter one another in these different modes 
and nevertheless remain at peace. Don't you think, Charles? Why, I think that that's true. I think that would operate as a perfect segue to our next topic, but I want to say something else instead, so it's not going to be a segue. <laughs> Damn you, Charles. <laughs> yes, that's what I do. Um, I mean, it's just, is there a, a clearer note? We just discussed morality last week, and part of what we discussed in there is that Sometimes morality, as, as I mentioned, that people used to think, you know, being left-handed was immoral, much as, you know, being a homosexual was immoral, because these are largely things where 90% plus of the population does it one way, and the other 10% does it another way, and people get really mad that we're, that we're, not, in, we're not in agreement, that we're not in concert on how we view some of these things. And um, this Laurel and Yanni thing really, I mean, it demonstrates two things very clearly, one being that um, you know, people, people, as you said, people used to kill each other over stuff like this. Now we just make nasty posts on social media and tell them they're wrong and stupid. Um, but because this is a much better way of resolving our disputes than, um, than, than any of the previous ways. Uh, and, and yeah, that, that's, that's nice, but we still see that urge in there where people get angry at each other for hearing something different. And I think that it is, um, also the other point is that it's fascinating that this and the the dress from however many years yeah. ago that was, um, those both demonstrate that people can see or hear the exact same thing and interpret it very differently in their minds. Um, for my case, uh, I heard the recording and I heard Yanni. I definitely heard Yanni. Um, and then That's I surprised. watched a video where someone was adjusting the frequency and you could see him on his audio program adjusting the frequency and I immediately heard Laurel as soon as he adjusted it just a little bit on the frequency. Um, because, you know, that's what it's about, apparently. It just happens to be in this recording that if you adjust the frequency slightly, people hear different things. Uh, and uh, as you've said, it's nice to um, be in a situation where it doesn't result in violence when people have the have these results. But it's also nice to be in a system where we have experts who can play with the frequencies and show us what it's supposed <laughs> to sound like right. so that we can resolve these things with a process other than an online poll where 60% say they heard Laurel and 40% say they heard Yanni because the sheer number of people who uh, believe something has nothing to do with its accuracy, which takes us to our main topic, democracy. Or it sounds like where you're going with this is representative democracy. Well, I'm, I'm, we're discussing the purposes of democracy on today's show. And one of the points I want to make straight up at the beginning is that winning an election doesn't make you correct in a factual sense or even in a broader argumentative sense. It means that you win the election. It doesn't have a broader metaphysical meaning beyond that point. People will sometimes say things like, well, you know, democracy is a terrible system because why would the number of people who believe something have anything to do with why it's right? And that, I mean, Hitler made that point in Mein Kampf, if I recall correctly. Um, and that statement is, is true on its own, which is that something doesn't become correct because more people believe it. But that's not the purpose of democracy. And people who think that the result of an election has some broader implication on truth they're misunderstanding the point. Um, I would just get the ball rolling here by saying that the purpose of democracy isn't for us to choose 
um, the way forward that is going to be the absolute best way forward. It's largely so that we have the ability to um, shake things up and change a system that's not working once we've actually experimented with it. And that places that do not have democratic systems, the consequences that they tend to have will come from um, people who are in power for too long or systems that are more about their own self-preservation through violent non-democratic means. Um, David, do you have a thought on that to get us started? Well, um, as my um, attempt to get us started, uh, presumably indicated to anybody who was listening to me except for you, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I see the real value in democracy, you know, and using that word as a shorthand for the combination of um, norms legal and political institutions, uh, written constitution or lack thereof, you know, this whole set of cultural, legal, social practices that um, combine into what actually, you know, would be a functioning democracy, uh, not just, as you hinted at, not just elections, not just as George Bush seemed to think in Iraq, just elections. Um, so this whole, uh, the set of practices, the system that we call democracy, uh, what it is really good for is taking conflict, which is the just inherent, um, state that we, as human beings, as, as creatures in the world, uh, that we live in taking that conflict and giving it a pathway that is uh, nonviolent and creates and that creates legitimacy for the decisions that are made under its rubric and grants some kind of hope for the people who you know whose whose wishes are mostly not uh, acceded to in any given round that uh, things won't get, too bad for them before the next election and in the next election, they can always hope for um, exactly what they want to be implemented. <clears throat> They're not, not necessarily exactly, but something more um, close to their full, uh, you know, agenda. Right. I agree. That's so, a pretty good encapsulation right at the top there. Um, so, democracy... so, the Yanni, so the Yannis win run one round and, the laurels win the next round. Um, and the thing that I think that I liked about something, well, it's part of what I liked about the point you made about the, um, you know, the sort of, uh, slate of articles and, you know, links that came out with like people showing the slider for the base. Uh, you know, it's like, Oh, we just, uh, you know, decrease the base and you'll see this increase the base and you'll hear, um, this set of sounds come out. You know, the value in that is that, um, there are, yeah, I mean, as, as you said, there are, there are experts who know best and part of what democracy should involve in a well-functioning version of that system is, um, people's 
wishes and feelings and hopes and sentiments being acknowledged in some way. So quick show of hands, who hears Yanni, who hears Laurel? But then uh, enough maturity for all of those people to then say, oh, hey, what's actually going on here? Can someone explain this to us? Uh, and then that person to say, look, you, none of you are wrong. None of you are right, exactly. Here's what's going on. You know? um, and that, that, that type of system strikes me as kind of the perfect uh, version of democracy where you know, individuals are appealed to for their reason are shown an explanation of the phenomenon that they are arguing about and come to some and then, and then can actually merge their horizons as uh, I think that Gadamer said um, rather than having constant endless conflict. Right. But I think I think we're mostly you know we always have to emerge from constant conflict. That's the the background of our world. Is I think that's the that's kind of the that's the that's my view vision of the universe. The vision of you know of nature is is pretty red in tooth and claw. Right, and in that sense, it's almost as though democracy is the world's largest and most complicated system of alternative dispute resolution. That. Uh, yeah, yeah. That that's basically its purpose. Um, your point earlier about you know you lose an election, well you can wait and go to the next election. I mean that's that's pretty spot on um, in terms of what we also said earlier about um, it. It gets the people in power out of power if that's what needs to happen in it without having to have a revolution. Right. Um, at least not a literal revolution. People still refer to it as being a revolution when it's purely democratic. Um, but as you also said, if you don't have a system of norms and a lot of functioning safeguards, then it doesn't function that way. And you end up with uh, majoritarianism, which is distinct from democracy, as we say when we're talking about democracy. Um, the Economist some years back, as it was noticing some of these trends start to creep across uh, Eastern Europe, was talking about the rise of majoritarianism and this, um, as it's basically happening in, in Hungary and, and Poland and, um, and Russia, where they're starting to throw away the norms of a liberal democracy and just keeping the democratic cloth over it uh, and saying, well, look, yeah. we can do whatever we want because a majority of the people said that this was okay. And to that extent, I think that it shows one of the flaws in how we, certainly as Americans, um, tend to overly fetishize the word democracy without taking into account those norms uh, that go behind it, which is that um, uh, you know uh, uh, if you don't have confidence that you can run again in the next two to four years and simply win the next election, then it is probably going to result in something less pleasant than an election as resolving the dispute. Yeah. Timothy Snyder, um, I gotta say, I I would really have loved to have taken Grand Strategy with Timothy Snyder. It'd be an interesting, it'd be a very interesting experience to have been able to. Um, I mean, I could have taken, I guess, I could have taken other classes with him. I just screwed up. But now that he's become like a very active global intellectual, uh, I I sort of missed the opportunity or the opportunity I had to have. Uh, 
taking him into class. But you know, he says that uh, one of the things he says about democracy is that it that democracy creates time, because other systems, undemocratic systems, um, erase time and they put the society into a um, they attempt to put the society into a uh, mindset where they feel that there is no time, that forces within the society freeze within the dynamic of constant conflict and that there are no moments within that eternal present uh, that allow for transitions. And democracies, by their very nature, assume a series of elections. And so it's sort of contained within the seed of the concept of democracy that there has to be a future where things can change. Because if you're voting now, you'll also vote again later. Now, obviously, he, it, it's a kind of, uh, the, the, I think it's a rhetorical point uh, to phrase this in the way that he does, because um, obviously, as you and I have said, like, there are democracies that call themselves democracies that also attempt to, um, in Snyder's word, you know, erase time and push society into a and into a into eternity. Um, but I like that idea of um, you know systems of thought, cultural, political institutions that create a sense of time, that create time because. You know, in, in high school, and this is, this is, I'm going to go on a, on a tangent. It's going to be an epic tangent. I'm just telling you now. Settle in. I've got my cookies and soda. Okay. Um, so when I went to high school, uh, you know, the first three years I was in this um, <clears throat> magnet school that was, uh, you know, it was a magnet program for public, student, public school students to come from across Houston to this um, high school that was, in terms of its actual um, sort of local community, like 50% black, 50% Hispanic, roughly speaking, um, and did not have a lot of resources. You know, was not it, it was a it was a pretty uh, rough neighborhood, a pretty poor neighborhood, and the local school was uh, not very well served, and. Uh, I happened when I went to high school to be at the tail end of my childhood obesity. And part of the way I made sure that it was the tail end was that I walked constantly uh, during lunch breaks. And as I, at some point while I was walking, um, it occurred to me, I might as well make myself useful. And so I started p picking up trash along the walkways. And... The, you know, it just made me think about the mindset of people who were in that environment who were willing to, um, who just weren't, who weren't thinking about the fact that if they threw a piece of trash, it made their own world uglier. And even more tragically, maybe they were thinking about that, but they did it consciously because they looked around them and saw a world that they thought was not for them. You know, that this high school was actually a prison and it was there to trap them. And 
they didn't buy into anything around them and they didn't think about a, making their own situation incrementally better. And that strikes me as the same, um, you know, not the same and not the same as what we're talking about, but analogous to this question of does a community have a sense of time or does it live in some kind of eternity? And if it has a sense of time, they can think about things changing, about things getting better, about if we, you know, we, we are empowered to do something to incrementally improve this, the lot that we have. And it just struck me as a tragedy um, that they were not living in that, in that space. You know, as opposed to, um, I just spent today out in the garden where, um, like, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be here for that much longer in this apartment, but, um, you know, I wanted, I'm like working out in the, in the dirt, clearing vines, and I'm going to plant some plants and stuff because, you know, for a couple months that I'm here over the summer and the early fall, I'll get to enjoy it. And then even if it's not, even if I don't get to enjoy the fruits of my labor, I'll still have made this little corner of the world a little bit more beautiful. And that will make me feel better even if I don't get to enjoy it myself. Um, I, I've sort of turned this into, I mean, and that mentality is um, something that I have tried to work on to just make myself a better person or in my own view, a better person. Um, I don't want to make this about myself in a way. And unfortunately I just did, <laughs> but you know, but the, but the, the more general issue is that I know that I am able to think in these terms because, um, in many ways, my experience of the world has been various institutions, um, sort of treating me as if the world is my oyster and for other people for whom institutions like the police or, you know, banks or, um, immigration and visa services, you know, treat them like the scum of the earth, treat them like a problem to be solved and contained and ordered about and directed. You know, those people very right reasonably, um, don't think about the next round. You know, they don't see, they don't think about the option for the next round where things can get marginally better. They, you know, they don't have that privilege in a word. Um, so, you know, so democracy, in order for it to work, uh, people have to have that mentality. But I think in order for people to have that mentality, they also have to see democracy working for them. Um, so I think there's a, I think there's a, a virtuous spiral or a vicious circle, um, depending on the process. And right now we're obviously living, we're living in this, in the, in the vicious part of that. Yes. Uh, that's, we've got to turn it around. Yeah. There's some interesting thoughts in there. I, um, it made me think about uh, something that bothered me recently when I've been thinking about some of the absurd statements the current U.S. administration makes. 
And I was thinking about it. It's basically as though they act as though there is no past. And so, therefore, they're not lying now because they never said that thing. They contradicted it earlier. Yeah. They act like that just didn't happen. And they act like there is no future in the sense that their predictions are never wrong. Like nothing ever comes because once, you know, once we're in the future, well, that's the past and the past doesn't exist. There's only the present and what they're telling you right now. And you have to believe that because with no past for them to have lied in before, why would they be lying this time? Right. And you believe them not because of what they have done and what they have said and what they have promised and what they've lied about. You believe them because of who you are. Right. Your current identity. And so, yeah, I mean, like, I think that there is a lot to recommend us to this uh to this phrasing of, of Timothy Snyder's. I like it. I like it a lot. And it makes me think too about how one of the big worries of what we consider these illiberal regimes is, um, as we've seen in Russia, that people keep evading term limits. That term limits is something that the chief executive manipulates so that the future is just always them. There's no future of someone else until they expire of natural causes, um, at which point maybe they get replaced by some lackey like Majuro who just insists on doing a lot of the same stuff and then cracks right. down when the public will turns against him. You know, Trump has already been floating those, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could just run again for a third term? Not that he's getting ahead of himself at all, but um, it's kind of I've been kind of amazed how openly some people seem to already be talking about that. Um, and that's why, I mean, term limits are something that I don't really support for legislative officials, but I do support them for executive officials. I think that it's important that the head of state, and I guess in a parliamentary system, this becomes a bit more complicated. You just say the prime minister. Um, it bothers me. So somebody like Netanyahu has been just doing a pretty awful job in my view um running israel he's one of those people who already had his chance didn't do particularly well left for a while then came back and now we just have to deal with him again yeah he's doing a terrible job again in my view and that's of course what putin does he's well okay it's consecutive term limits so i'll go away and then i'll come back again and it was just a farce the whole time um which is one reason why term limits should be lifelong and not not have a consecutive clause in there, in my opinion. Yeah, um, that's a good, it's an interesting question as to, uh, you know, the applicability of term limits to executive versus legislative officials. And I think I agree with you. I, I think that uh, if we're going to speak in very in just general terms, um, it may be capable of, you know, it may be possible to make that kind of a generalization. I think in general, though, you know, term limits should just be discussed in close association with whatever system right. it is that you're talking about. And so in the American system, um, the 20, you know, the late 20th century, 21st century president is so powerful that even if maybe FDR, you know, that era of president, uh, 
you know, FDR was sort of a transitional figure um, overseeing the presidency right before the um, beginning of the sort of global presidency, uh, as we both recall from the Brownlee report, the challenges facing FDR's office. The president needs help. The president needs help. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if that's a sort of transitional case, we can maybe argue both sides of that. Uh, at this point, you know, we know the the powers of the president, the powers of the executive branch are so unbelievably vast that it makes a lot of sense to um, mandate, you know, that, that no one stay in that position uh, for, for very long. Uh, but by contrast, the legislator is, is just so weak. Despite its primacy in the Constitution, the, le- the, the American legislative branch has shriveled. And to, uh, to find that shriveled branch... Uh, to make it even weaker is just crazy. It makes no sense at all. Um, so I think from a standpoint of uh, looking realistically at the system that we have in America, that's definitely true. Now, you know, for the systems in Europe, uh, maybe it would Maybe it would make more sense to have sort of universal permanence. I just, I don't know. Uh, there, though, I mean, we, we've got party slates in, in parliaments. You know, the, the, the party already has so much power um, that having term limits to force even more churn through cadres uh, within the parties strikes me as... Um, uh, I don't know. It's something. It, it wouldn't necessarily be good or bad. It would just reinforce the ideology at the heart of the party organization of European democracies, as opposed to any personalities um, within those parties. And I actually think that ideology is quite bad. I think it's been bad for America. I think it's bad for the world. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to be all laurel about that. Uh, you know, other people can have other opinions and I I would acknowledge uh, the right that other people would have to other opinions but I think that um, more cross ideological more pragmatic personality based politics are part of my vision of how things get better right you know, that we acknowledge how how entirely how entirely weird and complex people are and the world is and we give more room to people to make deals uh, to preserve the complexity and strangeness of the world and not attempt to um, force an ideological agenda on this incredibly complex world that we see. So I think, you know, ideology-based parties, for a long time, political scientists were confused about the American exception of the system with uh Parties that were so for, were for so long so tolerant of different ideologies within the parties, and um, as as bad as things were for as long as they have been, as bad as things have been for as long as America has been around, those bad things have been slowly getting better and better and better and better and better, and now um, as the parties 
become more ideologically sorted. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the trend line does not seem to be improving in the same way anymore. We've, uh, I mean, we're looking at, I don't know, you know, 20 years of ideological um, sort of trench warfare, and I don't see how it gets any better uh, in, the, in the coming years, given these political trends. Right. I mean, the, the natural pushback against that is supposed to be that, uh, in theory, that in a democracy you have to appeal to enough people that when you start getting too rigid ideologically, you then have to pull back to the center to start winning elections again. Because eventually you'll go too far, the other side will make inroads um, into what used to be some of your voters, and then you'll have to adjust to move back, and there's this whole shifting to try to find the median voter. Um, but it doesn't seem to be playing out that way anymore, at least in part because of so many districts where the primary is the election. And uh, the primary, being a low turnout thing for ideologically motivated people, the primary is just how crazy pure can you get for our ideology. But we're about to see this year, perhaps, um, the, this, the, the built-in um, structural defense against that, which is that when you've created these gerrymandered districts where you're encouraging all this you know, extreme ideology, you've made your margins thin enough that a wave year can just decimate a party. Um, you know, people have been, some of these special elections, the Democrats have something like an 18 point swing since the last election. And if you look at how many districts currently held by a Republican, um, who won by less than 18 points in 2016, they would lose, I mean, if, if, if that held up nationally, which, I mean, that would be. It seems like a stretch to say there'd be an 18-point swing nationally, but we've seen roughly about that in all of these special elections. If that happened, the Republicans would be utterly decimated in the House of Representatives. Although, because our structure is intended to prevent too much radical change, the Democrats might well end up losing seats in the Senate, even while they have some ridiculously historic swing in the House. Indeed. Indeed. Um, yeah, that's an interesting, it, 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 we're in an interesting moment when it comes to um, evaluating the prospects for the so-called blue wave. Because um, the, my understanding is that the, um, despite the performance in all of the special elections, the overall um, sort of you know, the temperature gauge of, uh, you know, how hot are the Democrats, what's the likelihood that they'll take the House, is that that's as, that's as low as it's been for for a long time. You know, there's like a 50, 51% chance uh, now having dropped from, um, you know, 60 a few months ago. Maybe not 60, but near 60, right. at least. Well, as, as some of the... Uh, well, this is this is an interesting part of democracy as well, which is that it requires a certain form of prognostication that doesn't exist in non-democratic systems where you don't have these elections to deal with. You might have yeah. to guess what the new, you know, um, 
what, what are they going to unveil? You used to have, you know, Kremlinologists saying, okay, here's what we think they're thinking in there. But it's not quite the same as democracy where you're trying to predict something that at times seems almost completely random, which is how we do in elections. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I remain faithful to 538 and Nate Silver because a lot of people were simply incorrect as to what performance they had in the 2016 election, um, which is, of course, its own rant that I've gone on before. But they've been yeah, pointing out with you for that rant. Yeah, they have been pointing out that there are a number of indicators that we usually have for how a midterm is going to go. And they're pretty split on a lot of factors right now. Um, where, you know, it's, it's, it's a midterm. So that's usually bad for the incumbent parties, um, prospects, but the economy is doing well, but the Democrats are doing very well on the generic ballot, um, being in the five to eight point range, but they need to win by seven because of how gerrymandered everything is. Um, but the special elections have been really really good. And so you end up with a situation where because our sample size is not that large um, and a lot of things are cross purposes here, we're going to have to figure out which of these forces is stronger. Now, maybe just because I'm overly hopeful, um, I'm inclined to think that these special elections tell us something simply because they're the only actual voting we've had so far. And those special elections because we we poll people on the generic ballot, that's not how you know races are actually decided. Um, and uh, some of the, the factors, like oh, the economy is doing well, we don't know how the economy is going to look in November. It could be better, it could be worse. Yeah. Um, and when they talk about oh, the president's approval rating is up a few points from where it had been. Yes, but it's still one of the lowest ever at this point in the presidency. Yeah. Um, so there's all of these different factors to take into consideration. And that level of uncertainty does, is part of the weakness of a democracy, I would say. This fact that it makes it harder for people to plan long term when things could get uprooted very quickly. When you have something like 2016 where people were so confident that Hillary Clinton would win. So if you're in the health insurance market, you assume Obamacare is going to continue as planned. But then, very unexpectedly, the rug gets pulled out from under you, Trump takes over, and they start trying to sabotage uh, the Affordable Care Act. And now, all of a sudden, uh, a lot of things, even though they haven't completely repealed it, they've been trying very hard to sabotage it. And now people are saying, well, the premiums are going to have to go up because of this these games they're playing with the individual mandate and a number of other functions that I would not pretend to fully understand um, in Obamacare. So like that's one of the weaknesses to having a future as it is, as it were, that the future is unpredictable. If you're in a one party system that does the same thing all the time, um, that future that is a boot stamping on a human face forever. Well, you know, the boot's going to keep stamping, um, in a democracy, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And it's exhausting. I think, I mean, the word, the word is exhausting Yes, uh, because people, I mean, again, I remember, um, I think we've talked, we talked about this, that, you know, Obama's message to America was, um, 
yes, we can. Not, you know, like, get me, it was yes, yes, we can, not get me there. It was not send me to the White House and fix all your problems for you. It was organize, you know, we all will organize and make our society better. But people don't want that. A lot of no. people don't want that. A lot of people are not ready for the responsibility that that actually entails. Um, because as you, you know, as you indicated, the freedom present in a democracy, in a real democracy, is exhausting. It's exhausting to think about what the other people in that democracy want. It's exhausting to think about what you want and how to actually get it. And a lot of people, uh, and, I, and I mean a lot of people, everyone has <laughs> encountered these moments in your life where, you know, what do I want? What do I want for dinner? <laughs> what do I want to wear? Yeah, these what? these types of decisions. Choice I mean, exhaustion is a thing. Choice exhaustion. Yeah, it's uh, people uh, people face these moments in their own lives, and um, no matter how successful they become in the choice architecture of their own lives, uh, you know, it shouldn't be impossible to remember how difficult uh, it can be, and. When it comes to bigger decisions, uh, for us at least, are in the past. Like, uh, like what what college am I going to go to? What um, what job am I? You know, what career am I going to pursue? What job am I going to take? You know, what what jobs am I going to apply to? Those types of things. Maybe for a lot of us are in the, are sort of in the past, but uh, even those things are exhausting. And a lot of people throughout history. And today, I think, respond to that unbearable lightness of being, as it were, with, uh, with submission. And they, they want, particularly in relatively prosperous capitalist societies, uh, you get the, the uh, Brave New World option, where things are pretty good, and you don't actually have to think that much about where things are going because life is relatively comfortable for you as long as you have internet access and uh, a few hundred bucks to spend on fentanyl. Um, but um, right. That's... Yeah, so, so there's a certain amount of I, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, quite, I'm quite grim uh, often and some of that grimness is coming out now, but I don't say this in a superior way. I mean, this is, again, this is something that we all face and uh, coordinating, here's the thing, coordinating action so that people feel that their individual efforts, the small amount of, of energy that they have to contribute, that it will be used, that it, that it won't go for naught, you know, that, that, that the contribution of their energy will not be in vain because the people organizing it and leading it have a good idea. So that's the kind of moment that you get in uh, 2008 when a, a large portion of the country felt 
tuned up like a like a beautiful symphony that all these crazy disparate voices were coming together and were going to be directed into something that that worked and um that's a it's a wonderful thing it's just it's just sad that uh and it's not sad it's tragic it is tragic that uh that that's not enough and that we, you know, that we have to keep struggling endlessly. Not only because you have Mitch McConnell in the Senate, <laughs> but you know, but, but also uh, more crucially, because um, even the people who wanted more or less of the same things in electing Obama didn't want exactly the same things, and. Um, that coordination problem, you know, only only began in on that second Tuesday in November in two thousand eight. Right, and that gets us to the exhaustive point of democracy, which is that uh, people had this big hopeful two thousand eight, but they were too exhausted to show up in two thousand ten, and they didn't yeah. think enough had been done yet, and so then everything just turned out. So on the one hand, you get this exhaustion from having so many elections, just elections all the time. If you look at how many primary elections and special elections we've had this year, it seems like there's an election all the time. And that's bad when it's too exhausting to really focus on any one thing. But then on the other hand, as much as, you know, if you're if you are, for example, a liberal, you might have thought, oh, we have too many elections because 2008 was this big, giant wave and we were all prepared to do all of these things. And then we ended up losing it because of the stupid 2010 midterms before we had time to fix anything. Um, but now, if you're a liberal, instead of thinking, oh, God, there's an election every week, you're thinking, man, we need to hurry up and have those midterms come because we lost in 2016. And we really need our opportunity to fix that incredible disaster because the Republicans are doing such a terrible job. So yeah. the elections are never far enough away when you're in power, and they're never close enough when you're out of power. Right. That's well, that's that's pretty much time. That's kind of how it's supposed to be. If it were any more satisfying on any one side, it would, I think, imply a an imbalance. But I, I have to say, um, I can't believe I just said the second Tuesday in November when I meant the first Tuesday after the first Monday. How utterly humiliating to me as a as a patriot well that's why i chose not to call it out for our listeners but now that you've done it yourself i suppose we can mock you yeah right um yeah but that's i mean maybe this is a a, a fairly good uh, segue into the alleged problem with proceduralism as a source of identity and a, a source of value and meaning in one's life. Are you randomly <laughs> covering your microphone at various points here? Because you, your, your sound keeps getting really bad and coming back to being good again. Oh, uh, that must just be because of the accident of talking on the phone. Because I, I just I have the phone uh, leaning up against my computer, and um, I'm not doing anything to it. A likely story. <laughs> okay. Well, I apologize. Well, anyway, now that we're done talking about the procedure of how you're holding your phone, what is your proceduralism argument? 
Um, well, it's not, it's not an argument. It's just that people, uh, one, one reads this thesis, uh, or at least a, kind of an assumption in uh, many of this um, rash of articles about uh, the weakness of liberal democracy, that blood and soil is more appealing and attractive and moving than commitment to democratic procedures and constitutionalism. And uh, it's, I just don't think that that's true because I think that, I mean, here's the thing, going back to the, how I opened this discussion, um, people never kill each other you know, people, the sort of idea of an ancient past where people were so ignorant and hateful that they would kill each other over <clears throat> whether you pronounce, uh, whether you say Ramadan, Ramadan, or Ramazan. Uh, people never killed each other because of that. They killed each other because the identities that they had accrued over time along the lines of things like language and religion which that then become shibboleths that map onto those distinctions. And then when the institutions that arise out of those groups or that attempt to co-opt those groups and mine them for um, tax revenue, for manpower, uh, go into conflict with each other. That's when people start to kill each other. They don't. They don't kill each other because it's like, what you said, Ramadan? No, it's Ramadan, you bastard. Bye. Right? It's the the uh, you know the the French state to shift gears for a second. You know, the French state attempted to make itself strong and fight against other states by going out into the countryside of France and taking the people who were there and forcing them into the army, forcing them to work, forcing them to do this and that, forcing them to pay their taxes. And within that system, the people who spoke a language closer to the language of the metropole were easier to control. You know, these are the types of... I mean, this is how it works. It's not, it's not that people... Um, are so enraged by these differences that they, that they fight each other. It's that the systems that actually end up in conflict achieve power in the world by following the seams of human society in ways that we recognize as linguistic, cultural, religious, those types of things. Um, and so in America, you have this, I mean, in, you know, what was the biggest example of a, of a constitutional system being set against, you know, a, a procedural constitutional system being set against blood and soil nationalism? It was in World War II. And you had America take people of all colors and all religions and at least um, in terms of their heritage, all languages, and said, 
you serve the army of the United States of America, make your oath to the Constitution, now go and kill those Nazis. And we did a pretty good job. So I think that, you know, I think that constitutional procedural loyalty, um, it's not, that's not really the issue. The issue is the power of the state. And um, fortunately, America has been an incredibly powerful state that for a lot of time, you know, for most of its history has mostly uh, adhered to um, legal constitutional uh, values. Although the very example you gave, I mean, most of the real beating up of the Nazis was done by the Soviet Union, which, you know, is, is not really blood and soil in the same way because they wanted to be a universalist um, yeah. view. Oh, I would say. I mean, it, but they weren't really committed to a liberal democratic system. They were certainly not liberal, liberal and democratic, but they were indeed uh, quite opposed to the concept of blood and soil. I mean, you have yeah. to give them credit for where it was worth. I mean, they were the, you know, um, homo sovieticus uh, was was just as much of a kaleidoscope as, um, you know, as sort of the American, as your typical American. Yeah, I mean, that's, this, this takes us all the way back to some of the discussions we had when we were talking about the movie Wonder Woman and the movie Dunkirk, which is that <laughs> yeah. our popular conception of Oh, well, it's the British Army. They sh of course, they're all white. Or, you know, it's the Russians. Or it's the Soviet Union, which we just call the Russians, even right. though they were so much more than that. We really do, through our popular culture, write out the nuance, which then gives people an image that says that something was homogeneous when it wasn't. And that's, and yeah, that's an important thing to take into consideration whenever we're, you know, it's not as though... Um, because America takes as part of its identity that it's a melting pot, that doesn't mean that, you know, France is entirely white. Um, and there are plenty of people in France who are upset about that. Uh, and that's part of the problem they've been having. But there are also plenty of white people in America who are bothered that it's not driven by white people anymore. Yeah. And sometimes they're a little bit more circumspect in how they put it. But sometimes you're Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, and then there's a black princess in the British royal house. Yes. So things can marginally improve in all sorts of ways, despite how uh, focused the forces of reactionary bigotry are in their attempts to, as it were, set back the clock. Right. Well, I wonder if that exhaustion factor is ever there for bigotry as well. Um, oh, yeah. It seems like it would take a lot of effort to be bigoted about some of these things. Some people make it look easy. Um, <laughs> but there are um, – but because it seems like most of the shifts away from bigotry are generational changes. And I've always kind of wondered if that has to do with a younger generation just looking at that and being like, that's – no, I, I just, you know, that there, that's, that's a lot of effort. You're telling me I have to have all of these random rules about what's allowed so that I can be nice and bigoted like you are. People tend to say no, but, um, I don't know. How often do you really see people who were bigoted stop being bigoted on an issue? And we've seen that a lot with gay rights in the last two decades. 
which was a somewhat anti-democratic process because it kept being handled through the courts and relatively rarely in the state legislatures. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting that's an interesting example. Um, but I think that that gets us into norms, which we need to do a whole podcast about at a different point. Right. Um, norms, of course, interact very well with democracy because sometimes democracy has to codify norms. The norm used to be you, re- you stop being president after two terms. FDR broke that norm, so people got together, enough people to amend the Constitution, which is not an easy feat, and yeah. said, okay, this norm now must be codified because somebody broke it. And if you look at the history of people breaking norms in democracies, I mean, that's how the Roman Republic fell, which is that eventually Gaius Marius is in there, and he's like, you know, what if I just wanted to be consul again? You know, <laughs> what if I just wanted to be consul, and what if the fact that these soldiers are reliant on me for their pay, what if I could just, you know, direct them through that? And then not enough people really stood up for it, eventually gets overthrown, and then the next guy comes in and Sulla's like, you know, what if I were just consul again? And so you take the, the whole corsus honorum that was this important part of Roman society suddenly falls apart because the only thing that ever really held it in place was was norms. Yeah. So that will bring us to the end of this week's discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it. We barely scratched the surface of a lot of um, parts of democracy. We may have to do other podcasts on uh, norms, another podcast on liberal in the sense of liberal democracy, because that's the, diff- the distinction between a liberal democracy and a democracy is something we didn't really get to today um, that touches on the majoritarian argument um, that hopefully we can discuss in the future. There's just so much fertile soil for us to um, dis- discuss. And we have so much blood of our own to pour into that fertile soil. Um, and now for this week's sign off. Um, it is David's turn to do a musical song parody. I understand you're going to discuss what it's like to raise kittens to the tune of wishing you were somehow here again from Phantom of the Opera. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yes, that's right. You, uh, you've you read my mind, Charles. That is exactly what I'm going to do. All right. Well, then, we'll just uh, attach that to the end of this recording later, or if not... Um, David didn't fulfill his end of the bargain. So we'll see you next week. <laughs>